1: Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and this is Our Wild World. Today we're talking with Rick Heedy, a carbon accountant, and we're discussing the critical issue of climate change. We did a previous episode with Rick in 2014 about the small number of com- companies that are responsible for the larger percentage of CO2 emissions. As we all know, a lot has changed since then, especially with the IPCC 2018 report and the White House Climate Report released on Black Friday. Many of us, with all the publications in mainstream media, online, in print, and on TV, are working to understand all the implications and what is at stake. So, I think it's time to have a discussion with somebody who not only understands the technical aspects, but also contributed to the science of these reports. Help us understand what's happened and what we can do. So, So, without any further ado, welcome, Rick. Nice to have you back.
2: Hi, Ellie. Nice to be talking with you again.
1: It's great. So, you've been busy.
2: I have been. It's a busy space. I've been traveling a lot and writing writing a lot of papers, and that's all exciting work.
1: Well, that's great. So uh, we got a lot of territory to cover today, and I'm really excited about this conversation. So, listeners, um, stick with us because we're going to cover a lot of ground. So, Rick, you've you've done some really groundbreaking work on carbon accounting and holding big carbon emitters accountable. In 2014, we talked about how 90 companies are responsible for most carbon emissions since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And listeners, you can tune into that episode, we'll provide a link, but today we're focused on what's changed. Rick, can, can you give us an updated overview of your work since then, the carbon accounting, the responsibility of holding those accountable, and some of the lawsuits that you've been working on?
2: Sure, Eli. I'll start with with the the basic premise of the work is to shift partial responsibility for climate change and climate damages, not in terms of nations and consumers and individuals contribution to emissions of carbon dioxide and methane, which is the basic um, international diplomacy on climate negotiations at the Conference of the Parties. The last one happened in Poland, for example, in in December of this year. And that emphasis is on the burden of nations to help resolve the climate issue in accordance with their common but differentiated responsibilities. My focus is not on the burden of nations to do this, but the burden of corporations that extract the fossil fuels out of the ground, process it into usable fuels, with the full knowledge of the potential damages that their products will cause to the atmosphere and to society and to the planet at large. And so nobody had done an accounting of each of the major fossil fuel, oil, gas, and coal companies' contributions to atmospheric change. So I did an historical analysis of the largest corporations that extract fossil fuel documented how much oil, gas, and coal they extracted by year, going back as far as 1854 for a couple of companies. Wow. most of the companies are from 1900 forward. And trace the emissions from the carbon in their products that they sold globally, and how much of that carbon ended up in the atmosphere, deducting for non-energy uses such as asphalt and petrochemicals mostly from crude oil, for example, or natural gas liquids. So we can have a sense about how much of the atmospheric carbon dioxide can be traced back to the uh, production of fossil fuels that these, these companies have done.
1: That is a huge amount of data.
2: That, so That was a huge amount of data, and it took me several years to do the basic research by uh, going to various libraries around the world, getting colleagues to send me Annual reports because we want to use corporate data for this. And I have a peer reviewed methodology for all this stuff. And that caused a lot of traction when the first report came out in 2014.
1: I remember and that. So then, you know, so since then, you've been doing more of this. And I track,
2: that's right. I tracked the same companies, Ellie. And we've increased coverage by about 200 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. And we now have about 66% of all global emissions of carbon dioxide and methane traced back to these 90 carbon majors.
1: Wow. that That is really mind-boggling. Um, so when you released this report and this data became available, um, I heard you were subpoenaed by the science committee?
2: I was. Um, it probably traces back to some right-wing conservative blogs following our publication many years ago of uh, a report and a a workshop at La Jolla in California to look at climate litigation and learning some of the lessons from the tobacco industry and, and their issues with telling the truth about the impacts of cigarette smoking. And we want to learn the lessons from tobacco and litigation and how that some of those lessons might be applicable to climate change, and the responsibility, the corporate accountability of fossil fuel majors. That- so that that was um, published uh, on our website in 2012. And by the, by 2015 or 16, the House Science Committee became aware of it, and they investigated not only my little Institute Climate Accountability Institute, but also my colleagues. Uh, in other institutes like Union of Concerned Scientists, some of my funders like Rockefeller Brothers, uh, Al Gore's Climate Reality Outfit, Greenpeace, etc., And so they launched an inquiry and investigation of my role in, um, in a coordinated attempt by us allegedly to silence and deny the First Amendment rights of oil and gas companies to tell their side of the story which is quite, further, quite far from the truth. We were we were transparent. We published our reports. We were clear about our intent that uh, we wanted to learn lessons from tobacco, uh, and it was clear to us many years ago that there is potential liability by the fossil fuel industry, not only from the, the contribution to the atmospheric change, but also their funding of climate denial groups and obfuscation of the science and. Telling uh, shareholders one thing and the public another, and for that matter, what they have, how truthful they have been with the Securities and Exchange Commission requirements to report fully on the risks to shareholders, for example, of their contribution to climate change.
1: This is this is huge. Um, It it almost makes me speechless, which is a rare thing to happen. So the. there's so much going on, so you you talked about you know the research and big gas and big oil, which under this current administration seems to be um, getting a lot of favoritism, and as we wipe away a lot of our EPA and ESA and during this current shutdown, um, so with all that you've said so far, help us understand what are the in in a short fest, because we're going to get into this a lot more, what are the implications of this past work to our future, and how do we hold these companies accountable?
2: Well, our approach, um, my individual contribution has been, as a geographer studying the flows of carbon from the ground to the atmosphere, has been to do the basic scientific work. And a lot of Lawyers, many lawyers around the world have noticed this work as key to not only identifying potentially responsible parties, but also how much they have contributed to the atmospheric CO2 and how much that changes the temperature of, uh, of the atmosphere, as well as how much of that extra temperature and heat content changes sea levels around the world which then leads to damages that flow from from human-caused climate change. So now we know the percentage of total anthropogenic or human-caused climate change and how much we can trace to each corporation. And that's of interest to lawyers that are pressing cases in California, in uh, Baltimore, in the state of Rhode Island, in Colorado, in Germany, uh, a national investigation by the Human Rights Commission in the Philippines and other activities around the world that are pressing the legal case for holding the corporations accountable. And I think their their boards and shareholders take notice. They are concerned about damage to their reputation. Um, My personal view is that they have made misstatements and deceptive statements to the public, to legislatures, in order to preserve their profitability and, and durability over many decades from now. But we know that global emissions have to be reduced. They need to be peaking shortly. Uh, and we think that it's, it's up to the fossil fuel corporations to align their investments in renewables and alternatives in line with the science to reduce global emissions, not just up to nations and diplomats and international agreements, the corporations have to fall in line and do what they can do. And there's a lot they can do. So So that's the elephant in the room, and that's what we're focused on. Okay, so I'm
1: going to skip ahead for just a minute. Um, You know, we've talked previously on on this program about, you know, and, and you're talking about the need for big corporations to pay for and account for the environmental damage they cause. So you've... You've elicited, you've, you've broken that out, so you, it's actually readable. So what are your thoughts on how we regain the losses from the damage they're doing to the natural world?
2: Well, as I understand that, Ellie, there's, there's a lot we can do to reduce future damage whether it be uh, preventing the worst damages from happening. But in terms of recovering the damages that have already happened, that that ship has sailed. We have now launched environmental change, at least when we're talking about climate change, that will cause sea levels to rise for centuries, not just decades. And even if we stop emissions tomorrow, which obviously we're not, that sea level rise will will continue. So it's our obligation to reduce emissions in order to reduce future damages. But we're watching, for example, a new report notice that these the ice loss from Antarctica alone is now 250 some billion tons per year. And that converts in volume of ice lost to 27 Empire State Buildings every hour of every year. That's an enormous amount of extra water into the oceans. And there are lots of other sources and glaciers that will contribute to sea level rise. So what we're trying to avoid is making the issue worse. I don't think that we can restore or prevent sea level rise. We can't prevent the increased storm damage and the severity of hurricanes and the moisture content and rainfall from events like we saw in Houston a couple years ago where scientists have concluded that there are about 30% stronger and more precipitation from human inputs to the atmosphere.
1: So a lot of the extreme weather, drought, uh, tsunamis, uh, uh, hurricanes, and um, so that's all a result of climate change. We can no longer deny this. Climate change is not about a belief system, it's a fact.
2: Most of the science is quite clear, and there will be decades worth of work for scientists to resolve the minor changes, but the basic physics of climate change are well-known and documented, and I must say I'm gravely concerned about what will happen to our world that we, we live on and, and get sustenance from for centuries to come. And I, I know we can, we can turn... The tide now of of uh, investing in alternative energy, and I think we can still do that and prevent the worst of the damages
1: Wow, so this does tie directly into and a lot of um business leaders have been addressing this as well that infinite growth, the consumptive capitalistic model we're un- we're following, and everybody is jumping onto that bandwagon in other countries is not consistent with a finite resource base on a planet.
2: Well, telling individuals and consumers what they can or cannot buy is a difficult proposition. But I I know for a fact that we can live a comfortable life in this country using a fraction of the resources, particularly fossil fuels, that we do now. And there's a lot of good science being done on generating renewable electricity in this country and converting our fossil fuel generation into 100% renewables. Even if we don't make it to 100%, 80% is, is fine. It can be invested in over the, the coming decades so that U.S. can reduce its emissions towards zero by 2060 or 2050 without without, um, without compromising our lifestyle. It just means having more efficient equipment and lifestyles without really foregoing the pleasures of life that we are used to here.
1: So, um, a lot of the news says that the impacts uh, of climate change are affecting those who do not consume nearly as much as the first developed world. Mm Mm-hmm. So their lifestyles are changing very rapidly before they even get a chance to reach our level of a lifestyle.
2: And I think it would be fair, given the wealth in the U.S. and the developed Western world, we have collectively have been responsible for the vast majority of the atmospheric changes and the the burden of the carbon dioxide increase in the atmosphere. And I think it's our obligation to help developing nations do so without the enormous climate impacts that we have exerted. We can help them develop without vast consumption of fossil fuels
1: so in in, in a nutshell we we need to cut to a break this is This is fascinating information, but what we're we're hearing right now is the first developed world um does need to take responsibility, and this is the science that Rick has been involved in. So, folks, stick with us because we have a lot more to get into, and we're just going to step to a break.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Wildlife. w-i-l-d-i-z-e dot o-r-g
1: and welcome back this is Ellie Weiss. you're listening to our wild world and my guest Rick Heady, uh, with the Climate Accountability Institute. So Rick, in our first section, we ended on a rather hard note to hear that um, we can, that what's coming down the pipeline in terms of climate change and what's happened to our environment and our atmosphere cannot be. Recouped cannot be restored in terms of our, our current lifetime. So what can we do? How can we hold uh, these global institutions accountable?
2: Well, if we are um, following my train of thought, which is to hold the fossil fuel companies partially accountable for climate damages and climate change, Then the litigation that's been filed in numerous jurisdictions around the United States and and elsewhere would hold them financially liable for some repair and adaptation to the damage from sea level rise, for example. So a number of the cases in California are based on recouping and uh, asking for compensation from the major oil, gas and coal companies to help deal with the effects of sea level rise on the coast. So that would include harbor facilities, that would include um, state and municipally owned facilities such as sewage treatment plants or water treatment plants or roadways or private property that uh, are damaged from sea level rise. And the billions of dollars that these communities will have to pay, at least hundreds of millions in many cases, that these communities will have to pay to deal with sea level rise and other damages and effects from climate change. Well, they're seeking some compensation to help deal with the costs that these corporations have knowingly contributed to and have continued to contribute to, even though they well knew the science starting in the 70s and 80s, that their products were... Very likely to cause climate damages, but they continued anyway. And instead of investing in transparency and a coordinated attempt to deal with it, they try to bury it and confuse the public and avoid any uh, congressional action to change the fossil fuel industry.
1: Is that is that because of money? Is is that all? Just because of money?
2: Well, I think the profit motive by uh, corporate America has a leading role in deciding to avoid legislation and confuse the public about the climate science so that its business model can continue according to their own kind of internally driven objectives, that is to grow as an oil and gas and coal company. I can't say to be an economist, but it seems to me that most companies have a natural inclination to want to grow, whether it's Starbucks or ExxonMobil. And any attempt to kind of say, well, that's enough ExxonMobil, you have enough refineries and enough oil wells around the world, plan on a managed decline of your basic resource that you sell to the public. It's very difficult for a corporation to get their head around
1: I I think it's difficult for all of us to get our head around it, especially in this you know this, this the United States where we're all very comfortable and as you'd said before you know to adapt to climate change and that we don't have to go back to living in a cave but the people whose islands are underwater um there's going to be an influx of migration so immigration people have to move there's going to be reshaping of land and you know temperatures are going to change so that's going to shift agriculture so without this shift in terms of completely always infinite growth how how can what are some solutions to how these companies if we pressure them can adapt to what's coming at us
2: well, let's assume for the, for a moment that, uh, as we see in most of European companies that are taking the lead in addressing climate change, some of these European oil and gas companies, for example, have committed to um, be climate responsibility in terms of their investments. And so you have the Norwegian state oil company Equinor, used to be known as Statoil. They're investing uh, upwards of a billion dollars in offshore wind, solar, and other renewables as part of its energy portfolio. And that's where we see oil and gas and coal companies moving, particularly oil and gas, moving more into making a commitment to transform themselves into an energy company rather than simply an oil and gas company. Yeah, US companies tend to be reticent and slower in this regard, but um, there are ways where an oil and gas company can shift investments In line with the science for global emissions reduction, to invest in alternative fuels, lower carbon, liquid fuels, get into the electricity generation market, and reduce their global footprint in accordance with the science. I think that's a positive step.
1: So, a lot of folks um, that I've talked to, you know, with wind farms and solar farms, and some of the images that we see of what the future of what these could look like uh, a lot of people say i don't want to see that that we're we're not used to looking at that you know it, it 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 is a change in our landscape so how do we address that kind of nimby attitude that we don't want to see these so therefore it puts them out in places away from us which will have an impact on open space wildlands wildlife so huge wind farms out in the ocean or in the plains, and huge generators that I've seen—that's kind of like science fiction. How do we get people to say, "It's either that or this"?
2: Well, I prefer to see a wind turbine uh, in the distance than I would knowingly understand that we're melting the ice off of Antarctica on on. Um, manageable pace. So how to politically make that argument, I'm not sure, Eliad. Um That's a difficult one, but I think public understanding of the consequences of business as usual and how it will change our world, not just at a distance, but at home in terms of increased hurricanes and tornadoes and sea level rise and um, effects on our agriculture and fisheries. These are things that the public will get to understand in terms of what the options are. And I think we'll embrace renewables far more effectively if we have better public understanding of it. So, Particularly, it would be helpful if the administration itself would act progressively and take a lead in this regard. Absolutely. I'd like to be the case with the current administration, but that will change.
1: Well, it's going to have to. and what you had said in terms of a lot of the changes we're, we're going to see and are seeing, drought comes into that, correct?
2: Droughts, uh, saltwater, intrusion, loss of lands, loss of barrier islands that make uh, the coastlines more vulnerable. We see huge um, storms and precipitation events. Uh, all of these are going to increase. And yes, droughts are certainly the... One, one effect, and we're seeing a drought in the western United States now where our large reservoirs in the Colorado are half as full as they were 20 years ago.
1: Right. And then we've also seen a massive increase in wildfires. Correct. So yeah. you, having uh, to use our, the, the water we have to fight the wildfires is, is another impact.
2: Well, I don't think there's a shortage of water necessarily to fight wildfires, but um, we certainly are adding to temperatures and dryness of the forests and um, and the fuels that accumulate.
1: Wow, this is just so big. Um, my mind's going in so many directions. So let's let's bring it back to the biggie. Let's talk about the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and the White House Climate Reports. A lot of people have taken notice of the very alarming IPCC report and that we have approximately 12 years to prevent catastrophic climate change at 1.5 degrees and then 2 degrees, which are averages. In some places, we're already there. So, in in parts of the world. So this is not like a thing that happens all at once at the same time, at the same pace, everywhere around the globe. So, this this 12 years thing is very scary.
2: I would argue, Ellie, that the catastrophe is now. Yeah. And we need to act. We still have a window to put into place progressive legislation, public education, uh, we as individuals uh, and um, managers of corporations can all make a commitment to reduce our individual and corporate emissions. I'm not just talking about fossil fuel companies now, but financial companies and banks and insurance companies and manufacturers and automobile companies need to look at what their contribution to climate change is and what they can do to turn to reduce their corporate emissions. Um, well, the okay. auto manufacturers, for example, are shifting once again to not only EVs, which is a good step forward, but they make more profit still on SUVs and trucks and they're shifting away from small, more fuel efficient cars to more trucks. That's that's a wrong step forward. Right.
1: And every every five minutes if you're watching Especially a nature programmer, something like that. They're all sponsored by automobile companies. To mm-hmm. me, that's an oxymoron. More mm-hmm. cars, and, and they're not going to get you out into the wild. And the wild is the place that doesn't need cars. So, what about just reducing the amount we um we make? that we keep processing these limited resources and turning it into consumptive items like automobiles about, and you'd said it earlier, just say you have enough. Mm. How do we get not only these companies to wrap their minds around that concept, but people, individuals as well?
2: Well, I think uh, by trying to do that, we're upending the the American model, of uh, happiness and pursuit of happiness and what we think we need. Uh, I do think that we're evolving into a human understanding that we do have enough, but that's very gradual. And um, But if I it's... Guess slow if uptake slow by individuals to grasp that we can reduce our consumption, I think it's more effective to actually convince people to invest in energy efficiency, for example, than it is to... Do with less material goods
1: and what about investing in those areas like the amazon forest which is the lungs of our planet mm-hmm. rather than having someone like the Bra- brazil's version of trump bolsonaro opening up it up to logging and removing indigenous rights
2: right. do you
1: think indigenous people have an opportunity and that it's not beyond the point if we get behind them to have lawsuits that will have meaning and effect?
2: Well, there are, um, there is litigation uh, and pressure by indigenous groups to preserve their habitat. Uh, that's my not my er- area of expertise, but I know that they're, efforts to preserve their rights and their, uh, and their wilderness for future generations and I would certainly support that myself and I know there are international organizations that are investing in preserving those lands and, and coming to the aid of indigenous groups whether it be the far north or uh, the equatorial regions
1: Wow, this is um, I'm kind of at a, at a loss why don't, um, why don't we cut to a break And we're going to have just a little bit of a chat to see where we can go from here. So, listeners, this conversation is not by any means over. Stick with us, and we'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
1: and welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest Rick Heady of the Climate Accountability Institute. And this has been a very intense conversation and I'm the first one to admit that this is a little out of my league. I'm here to learn and I'm hoping our listeners will learn a lot from this and do some research. So Rick, let's go back to the IPCC report. And um it it talks about the 12 years to prevent catastrophic you you're saying we're already there and there are parts of the world that are already facing more severe effects than we're facing and that are we past the point of no return and if we don't take immediate action and let's talk a bit more about what we learned from the IPCC report?
2: Well, sure. Um, But first, let's point out how the uh, intense inertia of the global carbon economy that is pushing nearly 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year, almost all of it from fossil fuel producers, which is what I cover in Carbon Majors. And it's really tough to turn uh, that inertia around and address the incentives and the business-as-usual plans of the fossil fuel producers. But in terms of um, the special report from the IPCC that was just released late last year, it shifted attention away from trying to avoid 2 degrees centigrade rise over pre-industrial levels as the primary goal to trying to keep temperature rise below 1.5 degrees centigrade instead. That's a much more aggressive goal, much harder to achieve. But in that report, they elaborated what the difference is between meeting and not exceeding 1.5 degrees compared to not exceeding 2 degrees. Um, The extra damages from going beyond 1.5 degrees are excessive and very costly to the human endeavor. I don't know that we can manage to turn the ship of the carbon economy around fast enough to reduce emissions. They need to peak now. And instead, we've seen various reports, including from um, the multi-agency White House efforts or the U.S. government efforts on... US impacts of climate change. We've had various reports that US emissions rose last year, even though they've had a multi-year decrease since 2012 or so. And so that's an upward tick in US emissions, 1.7%, I think. And global emissions also rose last year, even though emissions were on a global hiatus for three years and all of a sudden, instead of peaking, they increased by nearly three percent last year.
1: Do you think that has something to do with the big shift in a lot of the politics, political leaders around the world? So I, I know for one, in like in Africa, it's it's grabbing on to this growth model and development, sustainable development. And and I, I take a little umbrage at the word sustainable because it's not any growth is in the current model, is not sustainable? Or maybe that's a question that you can help us understand. What would be sustainable growth? What does that look like?
2: Well, globally speaking, that would be reducing our annual use of fossil fuels globally. As I mentioned before, I think the developed world, particularly the United States, that has emitted 26% of all carbon dioxide into the atmosphere over its history, That's an enormous obligation that we have today more or less failed to act on in terms of helping developing countries use for the time being either more effective technology or leave them some room to increase their fossil fuel emissions while we are more rapidly reducing ours. We have the technology and the know-how and the ability to reduce U.S. emissions much faster than they are now. I mentioned just a minute ago that U.S. emissions are again on the rise, but hopefully we can get a handle on that through technology and investment and shifting away from coal, for example. Uh, the Trump administration's emphasis on revitalizing the U.S. coal industry is going to go nowhere. There are those companies' coal producers are uh, often declaring bankruptcy because they can't deal with declining use of coal of coal in the electric generation. We're replacing it with natural gas, but we have a lot more effectiveness to do in terms of shifting away from fossil fuels overall. Um, Renewables are cheaper now than comparable fossil fuel generation. We should see a lot more wind and solar being deployed in this country. And much more effective end use equipment from cars to industry to our individual homes Our own habits can be changed to reduce emissions. Uh, And I think the U.S. has a burden to reduce global emissions or our emissions faster than the rest of the world. So
1: um, I'm going to just take a little segue here for one second. Um, Where does China and China's growth fit into this? Uh,
2: China has... Done a remarkable job of moving hundreds of millions of peasants into uh, a more modern age that has certainly resulted in China now being the top carbon dioxide emitter in the world. But their per capita emissions are um, less than half of what it is in the United States. Uh, and they are investing far more heavily in electric vehicles in carbon capture and sequestration and in renewables and non-carbon fuels than we are, um, courtesy of you know having a command and control by, right. the, by the communist party, uh, which have certain advantages compared to the market approach that we have here, where the market really has improper and flawed signals to both producers and consumers.
1: So that leads to,
2: for example, me to- we we subsidize um, we subsidize fossil fuel development. Not hugely in this country. Carbon subsidies are more effective abroad than they are here, but we do subsidize fossil fuels in this country. And um, we don't have a carbon tax to equalize federal um, subsidies, for example. I think consumers ought to be paying the full cost of using a gallon of gasoline or a kilowatt hour of electricity. Instead, we're hiding that true cost from consumers. For that matter, we're hiding it from producers that design and produce automobiles and, and commercial vehicles.
1: So an analogy to <laughs> that would be organic food, truly organic, um, not just the the marketing aspect, that mm-hmm. when you pay more for having it be cleaner, mm-hmm. you, we are paying the true costs. And just about every other country I'm familiar with pays the true cost for their gasoline, their fuel and their, their um, electrical uses.
2: Well, yeah. uh, certainly in Europe, most countries pay a lot more for their, their gasoline than, than we do. And uh, I don't think it's a rational economic theory to hide the full cost of using a gallon of gasoline from consumers and, and manufacturers. We should be paying the full price. This should be done gradually over at least 10 years of time through a carbon tax or alternative way of, of charging a carbon fee, for the costly impacts on future generations, as well as our our own old age, of the cost of using resources now. We're borrowing from our kids, basically, but right. not paying the full cost, and so we overconsume, obviously, uh, those resources that are underpriced. That's, that's what leads to rising emissions of carbon dioxide in this country.
1: That's a really important point, you know, to address it. Um, it, mentally for us, my listeners, to help understand how, how we shift our behavior that, you know, we're not paying the true costs of it. And that keeps us kind of in a, a, a fuzzy cloud of denial without, as you said, not really knowing it because it's yeah. not transparent and outright information. So that brings me to a question of, you know, what can our federal and government, federal and government policies do to address
2: this? Uh, Well, first on my list is to desubsidize the fossil fuel sector. Second on the list would be paying uh, a carbon tax, a gradual carbon tax. And there are lots of proposals for this, some of which are um, very popular in a minority of Congress to charge a gradual increase in, in the carbon tax, for example, that is then returned to the individual taxpayers at the end of the year so that, we, so that all the proceeds to the government are redistributed back to the population that are paying higher costs for fuel and electricity. So that's a carbon neutral tax, for example, but we should be paying a higher price at the pump regardless. We should regulate emissions there are lots of regulations that ought to ought to be imposed on uh, on emissions of methane and carbon dioxide.
1: Is is that the term cap and trade? Is that uh, where that fits in?
2: That fits into more of a carbon tax alternative policy. Okay. Um, and we um, there's a lawsuit having been filed on behalf of. Um, many young children or young adults in this country call it our children's trust litigation versus the United States um, it was originally filed under Trump and and now sorry under Obama and now president Trump um, but that lawsuit is uh, is being held up uh, hopefully that will go forward because it will hold that will hold the national government accountable for addressing climate change much more aggressively than we're doing now. And we need some kind of impetus legally and morally and financially to shift attention to what the consequences are of, of increased emissions in the U.S. And, and globally.
1: So it leads me to a question. We're at a point with a, a changing political system here. I usually don't discuss politics a lot, but... Trump is this administration has been so blatantly obvious in not getting on board with climate change. They're they're in denial. So we've we've had a nice political shift for the House. The Senate is still kind of under some uh delusions. And so with the, the lawsuit you just mentioned, our current government shut down over wanting money to build a wall and this crisis that we're truly facing immediately of the damages that climate change is going, is doing, not only is going to do, has done, is doing and how do we bring this political will to address this, to bring it to the fore
2: Well, um, Mr. Trump is an ignoramus on so many fronts. It's hard to know where to start. But um,
1: so are I, we. Are we basically, pardon my language, screwed until 2020?
2: That we? No, okay. no there, We we are we are still making progress in this country on evolving more mature and and more cost-effective renewable technology, for example. And so, I'm not giving up on this administration. It certainly has arisen. Uh, a lot of awareness on what we're not doing right. Uh, That's true. Versus a- Congress, or climate denialist. It seems, uh, at least on the Republican end, I would respect their opinion more if it was not just denial of the science, but an honest statement by the people who oppose action on climate in Congress to say, "Well, I, I understand the science. I believe we're causing." human-caused climate change, but really the U.S. economy can't really afford it. I would respect that opinion more than just being a science ignoramus like we've seen in the science committee in the House, for example.
1: So can There's we afford so it? Much positive.
2: There's so much positive that we can do.
1: Well, give us some ideas. We've got time. I, I need a little lift. I'm sure our audience needs a little lift now. What can we do? Where do we go from here?
2: Well, let's take our individual consumption patterns. Um, there are lots of things we can do in the home, for example. The average American home emits 26,000 pounds of carbon dioxide per year. And there are a bunch of things in terms of just turning off the hot water faucets while we're washing dishes or brushing our teeth, or um, things we can do in terms of turning off lights use energy-saving appliance features, air-dry clothes during the summer. And those kind of voluntary changes can reduce our emissions from the, from the average household by 3,000 pounds a year.
1: Do you think it would help at all to have like carbon footprint labeling on our, our food? I saw something about that the other day.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably a complicated and controversial thing. I'm not an expert in, in labeling, but I certainly support more appropriate and complete labeling on the things we buy i'd like to see uh, on the gas pump for example what the carbon footprint of buying gasoline at the pump actually does so then you can go from a bp filling station to a chevron filling station and understand that bp is a cleaner company and delivers fuel with a lower carbon footprint than chevron across the street does That way, we we would be aware of the carbon and climate uh, impacts of our purchasing decisions.
1: So where can our listeners, where can we find your research in this list of the 90 companies so we can make better choices?
2: Yeah, um, all the scientific papers and reports that the Institute has published is on climateaccountability.org. There are also a number of publications on my consulting side called climatemitigation.com, and we have publications there on what individuals can do in their household to reduce emissions. Uh, Also, an interesting short publication on carbon in your daily life that just shows various aspects of consumer um, items and what they cost in terms of the climate from wine to skiing to driving versus flying, those kinds of things.
1: Well, that's, that's great. So um, once again, tell me the website and the two sites again.
2: Climateaccountability.org has all the scientific papers on the carbon majors that we've been talking about in the fossil fuel industry, as well as the scientific papers on the environment and climate impacts of those corporate emissions.
1: Okay, and we 'll include the
2: other one was climate dot com
1: okay, and we'll include those links along with this episode, so our listeners do have a place to go find out more so Rick, I um thank you for this enlightening and um, conversation uh, i 'm walking away with a little bit of despair. But you've made a lot of the information much more understandable to the more lay people like myself, and uh, to think about climate change in a different way. Um, and I think that's really important uh, in a way that where where the where the production is, what we can do about it, and how we can turn ourselves and our lives and our policies and our representatives. Toward a more positive outlook.
2: Yeah, and let me just close with two quick notes, Ellie. Uh, I think corporate America is recognizing the importance of reducing their emissions. The fossil fuel industry is probably the slowest, but under other industries have, are taking the lead, as well as lots of cities and communities around the country that are aggressively pursuing opportunities to reduce emissions. And the last note is, um, I think the greatest change we can, we can offer is to vote the climate ignoramuses out of office.
1: I agree with you 100% on that. So, folks, we have our, a job to do here in the United States, and uh, the future is up to us. And for my listeners around the world, the same thing applies to you. We need to change, change our ways. And this whole episode helped us understand what's at stake. So, Rick, thank you so much for your time.
2: It's my pleasure, Ellie.
1: And I look forward to following up and talking with you further. But meanwhile, we're out of time. So, folks, this is our wild world. And if we want to keep it that way, we need to change some of the things we're doing.